Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son, was born of human flesh. While he walked the earth, so did others. And when Jesus was likely around his teenage years, a baby boy named John, not John the Baptist, but the future apostle, was born. Years later, of course, he would become a disciple of Christ. And when Jesus was around 30, John might have been a late teen, living and working and doing life near the shores of the Sea of Galilee. His dad was a man named Zebedee. He was a fisherman. And having had sons, John one of them, and John's older brother, a man named James, Zebedee trained them in the ways of his trade. Daily, John learned to fish. And it was his proximity to the Sea of Galilee which exposed him to Jesus. You see, Jesus came along in that region preaching and teaching and miracle working. The people of Israel were waiting for the Messiah, a deliverer, one to overthrow the powers of that age and renew Israel's kingdom. And they'd been waiting for so long. And as the word of God flowed through Jesus's mouth and as the power of God flowed through Jesus's fingers, John and others began to wonder if Jesus was the Christ Messiah for whom they'd waited. Alone on the lake's waters, John would have thought about Jesus and his teachings. He and his friends would have discussed Jesus and their thoughts about him. In fact, some of John's friends had even had a private audience, an interview with Jesus, and had grown convinced that Jesus was truly special. One day, Jesus was on the seashore, and John was there mending his nets, it was an elaborate and delicate duty, but John had grown accustomed to this job. He could take broken, frayed, and tangled netting and restore it to full functionality. It was tedious and slow, but with time and patience, John learned how to give himself to that task. And as he mended those nets on this particular day, Jesus walked by. First, he spoke to business associates of John, Andrew and Peter, and said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But then Jesus approached John and his brother James. And as they busily mended their nets, Jesus called them. Now by that point, given everything John had learned about Jesus, and I think also everything John had learned about fishing, he said, I'm all in. I'm down to leave this and follow after you. Nothing could turn him back. He would follow Christ. Now fast forward from those teenage years of John's life into his older years. At the point of, the time, of time that he wrote this letter, all of the other apostles had already died. John was the only one who remained. God had given him a full life, decades of fruitfulness and strength. He had written an entire account of, life, of, of Jesus' life. We know it as the Gospel of John. Not only had he worked as an apostle, but also as a pastor. 
He was in special connection with the church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and that put him in relationship with the churches around Ephesus, churches in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, and Laodicea. And he cared for these churches. He loved them deeply. And so it grieved him to see them in a state of disrepair due to some who had broken off from them, proclaiming that they knew things about Jesus, which John knew contradicted the true Christ that he had known. He knew he had to write letters which would circulate amongst those churches. He had to bring this group of early believers back to the original truth. He had to mend their nets. Tediously, meticulously, he wanted to repair what was broken amongst them. The deserters, the departers, the secessionists from Jesus, the true vine, they made bold and attractive claims. Look, we're 2,000 years removed from this letter and the claims that they made, so it's hard for us to know with hard specificity what their doctrines were precisely or exactly. But there are some things that we can glean from what John said that help us know what they were saying. For one, they claimed that they knew God in a special way that everyday Christians did not know him. Second, they claimed, get this, that they were without sin. Perhaps Adam's original sin or maybe sin in their daily experience. And third, they claimed they were helping Christians with this new message which contradicted the gospel the apostles preached. And with this letter, John was, would refute each one of those claims. But all those claims centered on one big claim. The big claim that they made was that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. We'll see that throughout this letter. It's hard for us to know why they said this. Maybe it was pre-Gnosticism, the belief that anything physical or material is evil. But John knew it to be categorically false. He knew it to be a denial of who Jesus really was, God who became human. John had been alive with Jesus. He'd spent years with the man before his ascension. And John knew as the last living apostle, he had to refute such bold lies. So he wrote. He didn't write to the people in error. He wrote to the church. Over and over again, he talks to them like a father to his kids. He called them beloved over and over again. He called them his little children time and time again. The elder, it seems, had to speak, and it was time for his younglings to hear his voice. Because of his urgency and the fact that he was a different kind of guy than Paul and the other New Testament writers, John went without the typical greeting of ancient letters. You know, Paul from such and such a place to such and such a people. And instead threw himself immediately into his goal for writing his first letter. It's the style that he used when he wrote the Gospel of John, and it's the same style that he's going to use in 1 John. And what he's going to do in the first four verses is declare his mission in this letter. And we're going to see three purpose statements from John in these first four verses. Here's his first goal, number one. Some of you have been waiting to write something down. <laughs> Here it is. Goal number one, proclaim the true Jesus. That's what John wanted to do. He wanted to proclaim the true Jesus. Let's read what he said in verse one and two. Look in your Bibles with me, or you can look on the screen as well. It says, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, or it came, it was clear, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And what this shows us is that John could not stand idly by and let these deceivers talk about Jesus like they knew him. John had to step up to the plate and defend the historical, actual Jesus, but also just share about his master, his friend, his teacher, his savior. John had been with Jesus when he wept in the garden of Gethsemane. He'd watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He stood at the foot of the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, while Jesus died. He had leaned on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. He'd run to Jesus' empty tomb with Peter. And he'd eaten with Jesus after his resurrection. Look, John knew about Jesus like no one else alive at that time. So he had to speak about him. And what I want you to see in these first two verses are seven things that John pointed out about Jesus or his experience with Jesus. First, look at that phrase in verse one. He says, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Now that probably reminds some of you of different portions in God's word. It might remind some of you of the book of Genesis. In others, it might remind you of the gospel of John, which both begin with statements like these. In Genesis, the beginning referred to the beginning of time as we know it, the created order that we see and observe and that we're living in. In the book of John, the beginning spoke of Jesus' existence from eternity past, that beginning. But here in 1 John, John seems to be speaking of the beginning of his own experience with Jesus, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. John's aim in writing like this is to point out how he'd been there from the very start. These other false teachers could not say from the beginning, but John could. These secessionists were not part of Jesus' group of disciples. They'd not been there during the glorious days walking and talking with Jesus, but John had. He'd been there from the beginning. Notice also in verse one that he says that he had, or we had heard Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus? John had heard him. He'd listened to Jesus pour out his teachings to the masses. He was there when Jesus taught his Sermon on the Mount, when he began, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He'd heard Jesus debate the religious leaders saying things like, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He'd heard Jesus weeping. He'd heard Jesus mourn in prayer over groups of people. He'd heard Jesus say things like, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he'd heard Jesus cry out to God and others while he was on his cross. He heard Jesus pray for forgiveness for the very people crucifying him. He heard Jesus promising paradise to a criminal who had converted and believed in him. He'd heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. 
He'd heard Jesus after three hours of darkness on the cross say he was thirsty and after drinking proclaim, it is finished. And he heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands I yield my spirit. And before he heard some of those words, he heard Jesus look at Mary, his mother, and say, behold your son in reference to John. And he heard Jesus look at himself, John, and say, behold your mother. John had heard Jesus. But notice also in verse 1, he says he'd seen Jesus. He'd seen Jesus. But, but did you see how he said it? He didn't just say, I've heard Jesus and I've seen Jesus, or we've heard Jesus and we've seen Jesus. He said, we've seen Jesus with our eyes. He didn't want there to be any confusion. Jesus was not a dream. Jesus was not a hallucination. Jesus was not just a spiritual being. No, John had watched Jesus, not in the metaphorical or imaginative sense. You know, I've seen Jesus. But he had seen Jesus with his physical eyes. He had seen the way Jesus looked at the beleaguered masses who were weighed down by religiosity and legalism. He saw the way Jesus touched the lepers and healed the sick, a foreshadowing of his coming kingdom. He saw how Jesus overturned the tables of money changers and spent time with sinners. What a life John saw. In watching Jesus, here's what John was watching. John was watching the perfect human being. He was seeing what Adam and Eve and all of us were intended to be. Jesus was flawless. He was bold. He was love. And John had seen him. But did you notice also in verse 1 that John adds another statement? He says, and we looked upon him. At first glance, this seems like a redundant detail. He just said he'd seen Jesus, but this is a purposeful addition. For one, the word might have had a slightly different use for John, a way of communicating that not only had he seen Jesus, but he'd inspected Jesus. He had gazed upon and thought about Jesus while he watched him. Additionally, it seems clear that John really wanted his little children to know and remember how he and others, which is why he says we all throughout this, he's talking about the apostles. They were actual eyewitnesses. You see, you gotta know this. Jesus and Christianity is not a mere philosophy or an invention. We're not built upon a dream someone received or a vision a prophet had. Instead, Christianity is built upon a real life, one who came and lived and dwelt among us. John wanted to make it abundantly clear he had seen and looked upon this life. But notice that he also says in verse one that he had touched Jesus. Like I said earlier, he leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper. He touched Jesus after the resurrection. He'd broken bread with Christ. They would have hugged and kissed and high-fived all throughout Jesus' time on earth. John would have shaken Jesus to wake him up when he fell asleep on the boat in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He would have tapped Jesus' shoulder to get his attention. He had touched Jesus. Now, why mention this detail? Well, because it was necessary considering the heresy circulating among the churches at that time. Some had begun to say that Jesus hadn't come in the flesh. John knew this was erroneous and a surefire way to miss the gospel. Jesus came to redeem this broken physical realm and usher in a brand new 
physical realm. Though not of this world, John knew that Jesus' forever kingdom would be inhabited by real people with real bodies, Jesus among them. John couldn't sit by and let the gospel come under attack by those who had no clue. But notice also in verse 1 and in verse 2 that John refers to Jesus with a title. He calls him the word of life, and also he calls him eternal life. This title, the word of life, it might sound familiar to you on a couple levels. First, it might remind some of you of John's gospel. Did it do that to any of you? You've read the gospel of John, and you know that in the first chapter, John referred to Jesus as the word or the logos of God, the Greek word for word, logos of God. And Jesus is indeed the eternal son of God who through his incarnation and substitutionary death shows us the invisible God. But, but think about it like this. Jesus is also the word of life in that he's the message, the word, about life, showing us how to get life or how to get eternal life, showing us the way to the Father. Paul spoke of Jesus as the word of life in the same kind of way in Philippians 2.16, and I think that John is doing the same here. You see, Jesus came to show us the way to true life. You can say that you have God all day long. You can say you are spiritual all day long. And you can say that you feel close to God when fill in the blank. But if you've tried to find spirituality or holiness or deliverance, or morality, or joy, without Jesus and his message, you don't have the real thing. During John's day, people walked around saying, we have God, but since they'd rejected the son that God sent, they were walking around deceived. Conversely, if you have believed in Jesus to be the son of God who came in human flesh, substituted himself for the sin of the world and rose from the dead, if you've trusted him alone for the cleansing of sin as your pathway to God, then you have received the word of life. Look, no one knows except for God who has made a true profession and who hasn't. But true believers have the life that Jesus claims he brought. It's through him we can enjoy God. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, look lastly here in these first two verses at the seventh thing that John pointed out, he said that Jesus, verse two, was with the Father. What's he doing when he says this? He's pointing to the pre-incarnational, the before Jesus came to earth location of Jesus. I wanna say this very clearly. Jesus was not created, ever. You should say amen to that. <laughs> That's an important thing for us to confess. Jesus was not created ever. Look, God loves the world, and God loves every human being on the face of the earth, no matter what religious system they've attached themselves to. But many of the belief systems of the world have gotten it wrong about Jesus. He's not merely a highly ranked prophet. He's not merely one of many manifestations of God to the world. He's not a stumbling block which brings people into error, but actually brings them into the truth. He was not created by God, the spirit brother of Satan. He's not a created angelic being, a manifestation of Michael the archangel who's inferior to God the Father. He's not an example of one who attained to Christhood like we all can. He's not merely a good teacher or prophet or miracle worker. 
He's not a pre-Gandhi Gandhi. He's God. And that is why he's been in existence from eternity past. There's never been a moment when Jesus has not existed. Jesus himself attested to this. He said, before Abraham was, I am. When he said that, he was using a title that was exclusively reserved for God in the Old Testament, and the audience that he was speaking to knew it. He spoke of himself as being one with the Father, which everyone at that time knew equated him with the Father. He claimed to be equal to God the Father, John 5, 18. And he said, I and the Father are one, in John 10, verse 30. John knew these things. He heard these things. That's why he wrote stuff like John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That includes himself. He was not made. He did not make himself. He has always been. So John, like a loving dad, sat the church down and told them of the real Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the true vine in John 15, verse 1. And John knew this true vine. And this new group of thinkers, they did not. So for John, it was simple. He wanted everyone to know the real Jesus, even those who got Jesus wrong. He wanted to proclaim the true Christ. Look, don't allow yourself to be persuaded to abandon the real Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to me right now. In our age, everything will come against such a confession. You'll be told you're unscientific, but the Bible makes ample room for science if one is willing to think about it. You'll be told miracles aren't possible, but this is merely a presupposition one makes when they do not believe in the existence of God. Once God is in the equation, miracles are abundantly possible. You will be told that to believe that God's son came to earth, let alone believe in God, is nothing but fanciful superstition. But it's obvious that every single thing that we observe in nature had a cause. So it makes abundant sense that at some point there was a causer who was without cause, a perfect and powerful and good being, for he's always been. You'll be told that Jesus was merely a teacher or prophet or all-around good guy who was so awesome that his followers made up a whole story about his resurrection so they could build a religion around him. But these followers, they suffered and died for their confession. Hardly a desirable outcome, and not one you would hold on to a myth for. No, John saw the real Jesus, wanted his followers to know him, and wants you to know him as well. He proclaimed the true Jesus. Okay, but John had another goal too. He didn't just want to stop with proclaiming the true Jesus. Here's our second goal for you note takers that are dying right now. Number two, he wanted to promote true fellowship. He wanted to promote true fellowship. Look, look at verse three with me in your Bibles. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So we're going to tell you about Jesus that we've seen, touched, listened to. So that you too may have fellowship with us, he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All right, let's think about this verse. First of all, you might have noticed in this verse how John continually says, we, we heard, we have seen, we proclaim to you. 
What he's doing when he does this is he's speaking for the apostolic group. They'd all seen Jesus. They'd all heard of Jesus, but John was the last one of their band with breath in his lungs. He was the only one of them still alive. And so he's determined to represent them even though they're not there any longer. And these guys, these apostles, they'd worked so hard to proclaim the real Jesus to their world. They were very successful too. Christ's message spread like wildfire through the world at that time. And as they proclaimed, people believed. And as people believed, deceivers came. And when these deceivers came, they invited people into fellowship with them. That's why John uses that word when he pleads with his readers. He says, I want you to have fellowship, not with them, but with us, he's saying. John takes the false teacher's insidious invitation to fellowship and turns it upside down and asks Christians to reject that invite and come into fellowship with the apostolic group. This is a major purpose of this letter and of the whole New Testament. These men, they wrote and they spoke and they preached so that people would connect to what they said and wrote and build their whole belief system accordingly. And make no mistake, if you're here today and you think to yourself, well, it's nice that they wanted, the apostles, for us to connect with their word, but I don't think Jesus wanted that, you'd be wrong. Jesus wanted that as well. In fact, right before the cross, he prayed this in John 17, verse 20. He said, I don't pray for my disciples, the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In other words, Jesus' prayer with his dying breath was that the future generations of the church would connect to the word of the apostolic group. He had told these disciples that the Spirit would come and teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he had said to them. And so it would be odd for any other teacher to say what John said in verse 3. If someone else, a teacher or a leader or a pastor, stood up and said, I've got some truth that I want to declare. It originates with me, and I want you to have fellowship with me. It would be wrong for them to talk like that. But John could say it. Because the goal is not to get people to connect to a new or different line of teaching, but to Christ and his true message. But since the apostles were special messengers of the true Christ and his true message, it's right for them to write with the desire for their readers to connect to them. And look, all through the centuries, this has been a major battle in the church. Will we connect to the apostolic word or the dictates and traditions of human beings? Will we believe in the word is revealed in the Old and New Testament or twist it to our own destruction? Will we believe in something like the Roman Catholic doctrine of magisterium, which states that the church has authority over the scripture, which it doesn't. We're to come under the word of God. Or will we believe in good doctrines like scripture's perpiscuity, which means and states that the Bible is clear enough by itself that with a regular education, anybody could read it and discover the main message, that mankind is lost in sin and that God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. 
And look, don't think for a second that this is just some battle that's being waged by scholars over doctrines. It's a battle being waged right in between your ears and it'll be waged this week. When you fly into a rage, do you think the apostles and their message about Jesus have anything to say to you? Something which could set you free? Or do you think you've got to turn to Freud to get the real answers to your real problems? When you're building your view of what matters in life, do you believe the apostles are onto something? Or must you come up with your value system of what really matters by being practical and building it yourself? And when you're constructing your view of humanity, right and wrong, good and evil, heaven and hell, or man and woman, do you believe that the perfect man, Jesus Christ and his word, have anything to aid you in constructing your view? Everyone and everything is preaching these days. You can't watch Star Wars or Infinity War or Storage Wars without hearing some philosophy or some doctrine or some methodology. But through all the noise, the apostles still speak and teach and proclaim the real Jesus, the true vine and his word. They want to bring us into fellowship with them. And why do they want that? Why do the apostles so badly want you to connect to and have fellowship with them? Why do they want you to be a Bible person, to connect with the truth. Well, notice verse three. He says, so that we might with them have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John and the apostles want us to know God in his entirety, the fullness of God. He wants us, John does, to see him who declares God to us, Jesus the Son, so that we might be in relationship with him. Now look, let me say it like this to announce to a group of people that they could have an intimate relationship with the living God is sometimes scary for the people who hear that message. For many people, hearing that they could have access to God sounds like telling an eighth grader that they could have total access and a wonderful relationship with the vice principal of their middle school. What eighth grader wants that? <laughs> Who's looking for that? Many think of God as this hard figure who says no all the time and whose favorite pastime is bursting the dreams of human beings. But that's not the God of Scripture. Yeah, the creation and Scripture both teach us that God is all-powerful and eternal, but they also teach that he is good. He is the originator of beauty and love, relationship, kindness, and all that is right. And as creator, he is more beautiful and transcendent than anything that he made. He's more beautiful than the creation that he made. And he is presented in scripture as full of grace, mercy, and love for his people. He is seen as the only one who can fulfill and satisfy you. The psalmist said it like this thousands of years ago in Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And this psalm and many like it declare time and again how needy we are to be satiated by God, God himself, his presence and touch. This infinite being, this transcendent God, this maker, he beckons and calls and wills to be father. Not punisher, 
not lawgiver, not destroyer, but father. And not the earthly kind of father that so many of us are familiar with. You know the kind. Not the dad who gets angry, battles selfishness, and is a little intimidating to be around. Or the distant, occupied, don't bother me kind of dad. Or the absentee dad who never really tried. Or the best buddy dad who leaves all the hard work and hard conversations to mom. No, God is none of those versions of fatherhood, but he's a true father. And he beckons us into relationship with himself. And how does he do it? How does he invite us into this relationship? With a phone call, with an email, with a text message, with an awkward, hey, wanna get coffee sometime? You cool with that? Is that how he brings us into this relationship? No, he invites us into it by the precious blood of his only begotten son. He risked it all to make the move toward you and me. That's what Christianity is all about. As the great pastor and scholar John Stott once said, he said, we cannot be content with an evangelism which does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, but we also can't be content with an an evangelism or a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we've got to get past churchiness and the social clubness of it and into what the blood of Jesus makes possible, a real friendship together with God. So someone says, okay, I get it, I get it, Nate. God wants to have a relationship with me, with us, badly, but do I want to have a relationship with him? All right, for an answer to that, let's look at John's next goal. Number three, goal number three is to produce true joy. Look at verse four with me. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Look, one thing I like about John's writing is that he's really clear about why he's writing. When Paul writes, he's got arguments that build and conclude with applications. But John's writing is spiraling in nature. So sometimes when you're studying John, it's difficult to ascertain the point that he's trying to make. You gotta dig real hard to understand John and his writings. So it's very nice when he pauses and says, I write so that. It just helps you get where he's going. And here he says that one of the reasons that he writes is so that we could have, or or they could have fullness of joy. But he'll also have other reasons for writing. Later in the letter, in 1 John 2, verse 1, you might have noticed this if you did your homework last week and read through the book of 1 John. He said, 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Then in chapter 2, verse 26, he said, I will write these things to, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And finally, in chapter 5, he'll say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Now think about all these purpose statements that John gave. First, he's writing so that we'll have the joy of fellowship with God. So when he says that, what's he dealing with? He's dealing with the human problem of of loneliness, isolation, and separation. Second, when John says that he's writing so that we might not sin, he's dealing with the really big problem of human guilt and shame and slavery to behaviors that we don't want to do. 
Third, when he writes that we might not be deceived, that's dealing with the question of where we can turn for answers about life. And fourth, he wrote so that we could know that we have eternal life in Jesus, which deals with the problem of fear and worry and insecurity about the future. These are really big deal subjects that John is gonna get into in this letter. All this to say that John is gonna get after your heart in this letter. He's gonna use the doctrines of Christ to attack your loneliness and isolation, times you feel that no one understands you and no one is like you. He's gonna show you how the gospel sets you free from the penalty and even the pull of sin. By this truth, he'll set you free. He's gonna help you discover through the absolute claims of the gospel how the truth of Jesus Christ is real and true and in a world which likes to hedge on any truth claim is the truth. And he's gonna help you destroy your fears and worries about your standing with God as he shows you Jesus. I've been thinking about these truths myself, and personally, this is the conclusion I've come to. If as we study this letter, I can grow in the understanding of these things even 3%, then I know I will be a far greater man than I am today. If I can just internalize these truths. But let's get back to what he said in the fourth verse. He said, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right, so think about this little cluster of verses. He said, I want to proclaim to you Jesus, and I want to do that so you'll know and have fellowship with us apostles so that you can really know the the real God, have a real relationship with him. But the reason I want all that to happen is so that you could have, so that we could have complete joy. Now, what does he mean? Why does he say that our joy may be complete? Well, first of all, he wanted the apostles to have joy. He knew that as long as his children, his spiritual children, believed lies, he couldn't have full satisfaction and joy. Listen to what he said when he wrote his third letter. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, John had joy himself, but he was like a parent to the church. And they say that parents are only as happy as their saddest child. No matter how great life might be for a parent, they're in pain if their children are suffering or floundering. And John was no exception. As a father to these churches, he knew they would always be missing something if they had wandered from the truth. And he knew, of course, that not only would he receive joy, but it would lead to our joy if we believed in the Lord. Our joy, he said, will be complete if we embrace the true Jesus, hold the apostles' doctrine, and enjoy our new relationship with God. Now look, I want to ask you this. Do you believe that God is the one, through the gospel, who can actually bring you into completion, fullness of joy here on earth? Do you believe that? Jesus said in John 15, verse 1, he said, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He went on to explain that analogy by saying in the fifth verse, I'm the vine and you're the branches. So the father is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And he talked about knowing him and relating to him and abiding with him. And he concluded his teaching there in John chapter 15 in verse 11 by saying, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The question, though, is do you believe that that's true? 
Do you believe that complete and full joy comes from an abiding relationship with Christ? Do you believe that your connection to God is the one which leads to your deepest satisfaction? Because as long as you think that real or true or complete joy is found someplace else, you will not turn to the true source. And God's people sometimes make this mistake. In times past, God said of Israel, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They neglected the true source of joy. And the thing is, Jesus Christ is held out as the ultimate fountain of the living water of joy. All through the Bible, joy is found in various forms. But when Jesus arrived, true joy arrived. The long-awaited deliverer is here. And it's through our relationship with him that our truest joys are found. And 1 John is going to help us with this joy. Look, it's common for modern believers to talk about a relationship with Jesus. But John is going to show us precisely what such a relationship looks like. He'll teach us who God is and what conditions are required to walk with him. He'll teach us who the Son of God is and what doctrines we must believe to enjoy him. And he's going to teach us about our moral life, which accords with Christ, and how a life which refuses to submit to Jesus is likely not a life which belongs to Jesus. And he'll teach us about the most preeminent of Christian virtues, love for God and love for each other. And again, I ask you, do you believe this? Can you allow the one who designed you to tell you how he designed you? with capacity for himself, and that only he can ultimately get you going. Do you believe that complete joy is found in fellowship with God, who is written of in the apostolic word, which flowed from an understanding of the true vine, Jesus? All right, I'm going to close by giving you some application points. And I do this understanding that any scripture, there's one true interpretation of any scripture, because you can't have varying competing interpretations. That's nonsensical. So there's one interpretation of each passage of scripture, but there are tons of applications of those interpretations. And I'm sure the Spirit has already been working some applications for you, but I want to briefly, just real quickly as we close before we take communion, I want to give you seven applications. Number one, read Jesus. Read Jesus. I mean, if the error in John's day was that people decided to disagree with what the apostles said about Jesus, then read what the apostles said about Jesus. It's a great way to protect yourself from error. Number two, read healthy and widely regarded systematic theologies. This might not be for some of you, but some of you this could really help you in your life with the Lord. Especially in systematic theologies, read the section about Jesus, Christology. The scriptures have a lot to say about Jesus' deity and mission and humanity and return. And if you want some suggestions on where to start or to get some good systematic theologies that I would recommend, at the bottom of my notes online, I put three that I would suggest to you to get started with. It'll probably take you 10 years to work through all three of them, so have at it. <laughs> Number three, read good apologetics or defending of the faith material about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is so important for you 
to be thoroughly convinced in your heart that Christ physically, bodily rose from the grave. And materials like these can bolster your faith. And I asked Pastor Matt to give me three recommendations, and I put them in the same place online, three shorter books than the ones I just recommended that will help you become bolstered in the truth of Christ's resurrection. Number four, reject a low view of the Bible. Too many people have decided the Bible is filled with some good advice, some spiritually true teachings, and some motivating stories, while also thinking of it as incompatible with science, filled with contradictions and errors, and counsel which we shouldn't always adhere to. But it's this low view of the Bible which will keep you from true fellowship with God. And none of these assertions upon true and reasonable inspection are even true. Okay, number five, let feelings follow facts. What I mean by this in the case of this passage is that relationship with God is built upon the facts of the gospel, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you feel close to God or don't feel close to God. If you've rejected the cross of Christ, you aren't close to God. And if you've received his atoning work positionally, whether you feel it or not, you are close to God. You need to begin to Romans 6, 11 it and reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God, whether you feel that way or not. Number six, recalibrate how you feel about a relationship with God. We talked about this at length. Maybe you came here today thinking a personal relationship with God sounded scary, but instead start seeing him as loving, awesome, beautiful, ready to heal and bless and love and serve all who turn to him. He's, like we sing a lot of times, a good, good father. And my last application, number seven, is reconsider where true joy is found. We're going to discover in this letter how the world system, the thing that we're living in day to day, it's a liar. It tells us joy is found in places that it isn't. But we must make a conscious decision to agree with scripture regarding where true joy is found. All lesser joys are to be subservient to and flow from the enjoyment of God. Tell yourself, preach to yourself that this is true. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.